Here's a flashback to 2009. From WNYC in New York, this is NPR's On the Media. No, this isn't NPR. This is healthnewsreview.org. And we were just three years old when On the Media interviewed our founder and publisher, Gary Schweitzer. They wanted his take on what was passing for medical news on the morning talk shows. Here's a sample of some of what they played for him. A new weight loss drug that works by cutting cravings for food may be available by early next year. So is this the silver bullet we've all been waiting for? Research from the University of Rochester suggests the blue dye, such as the stuff that's used in M&Ms, could help perhaps prevent paralysis. This morning on Take It Off Today, the sleep diet. An estimated 63% of Americans do not get enough sleep each night. That is roughly the same number of adults who are overweight or obese. So can getting more Z's actually make you slimmer? You're probably thinking what I'm thinking. The more things change, the more they stay the same. What Schweitzer said then is what we've continued to hammer home for the past 12-plus years. Medical news can do better than this, much better. Be more thoughtful and thorough. Give people balanced information so they can make solid choices, not low-calorie clickbait that entertains more than it informs. Let's actually help people improve their critical thinking about healthcare. It's a mission that's been easy to feel passionate about which makes it all the more difficult for us and many of the people that rely on us that will be closing up shop at the end of the year. Don't worry, the website will remain as a rich resource and archive, but very little new material will be added. So, before our funding dries up, we thought it would be worthwhile to share with you what we've learned from the experience. I'm Gary Schweitzer, the publisher of healthnewsreview.org, and I have worked in some form of healthcare journalism for 45 years and have all the gray hairs to show for it. Gary launched healthnewsreview.org in the spring of 2006 and was a one-man band for nearly nine years. Now we're a staff of seven. In this podcast, you'll hear what each of us consider to be important take-home messages from our experience. You'll notice they fall into themes, themes which we think are critical to improving healthcare journalism. You could call Gary's theme, Embracing Uncertainty. You know, I give a lot of talks, and in those talks I may have 40 slides, but I always come to one slide and say, if this were a one-slide talk, this would be it. And it's where I say quite simply that too often media messages convey certainty where it simply does not exist. In headlines, but even in the complete body text of the story, we convey certainty, whereas the science that the story is based on is slow and incremental. It's uncertainty that fuels science, yet uncertainty is what we run from in our media messages. We have some remarkable video to show you tonight. Stroke victims making incredible progress literally overnight thanks to a new kind of treatment at Stanford. Emily Turner is here with a story you'll only see on Five. You know, it was a small clinical trial at Stanford that involved an experimental treatment with special stem cells. The doctors are stunned and the patients are overjoyed. She's uh, what we call one of our miracle patients. If we try to make everything 
that is not into breakthroughs, we lose appreciation for what science really is. Science embraces uncertainty, attacks uncertainty, says that's why we're in business. Well, that's not the way it's ever conveyed, hardly ever in the news. And this is a harm to public understanding, public comprehension, but more than that, the actions that members of the general public may take based on what they hear and perceive is a certain final answer that is nothing of the sort. And that is not the recipe for an informed healthcare consumer who's capable of being in a truly shared decision-making environment. And that's sad. I think it shows that people want simple answers to questions and journalists are inclined in a lot of cases to give them simple answers, even though that's not really how science works. Kevin Lomangino was our managing editor until just a couple of weeks ago. He's touched almost everything we've published over the past four years. And when asked for his take-home message, he doesn't even blink. Everywhere you look in the stream of health news that eventually reaches the public, there's an incentive to maybe overstate or sensationalize how important a given piece of research is. You know, it starts with the researchers who have an incentive to make whatever uh, results they've come up with sound very important so that they'll be accepted by journals uh, and hopefully in a top journal, a journal with a high impact factor because that affects their career advancement. And once that research gets published, uh, you have a number of players who have an incentive to, again, perhaps overstate or sensationalize the importance of those findings when they broadcast that message out to journalists and to the public. A short list of these players would have to include the drug and device industry, doctors groups, patient advocacy groups, scientific journals, and the PR departments for hospitals, universities, and medical centers. But our bread and butter at healthnewsreview.org has always been how does the media handle it? And then along comes a journalist who's maybe been sent this press release by a university or a journal, and they have a similar set of incentives that they're working from. They want to drive traffic to their news outlet and to their story because traffic is what generates ad revenue. And when that's the priority, you're not going to see a lot of attention on things like harms or what's the quality of the evidence or what are the alternatives? You're mostly going to see an emphasis on, wow, isn't this great? Or a simple message like, this intervention is going to cure you of this disease. Or isn't this a breakthrough or a game changer? Those are the kind of things that get the public to click. And so at the end of the day, the person who's reading whatever this information is about a new treatment or, or whatever the issue is, they're likely to be misled and potentially harmed uh, because they don't have the information that they need to make a good decision. So over 
the past four years, I've reviewed probably around 600 news releases related to healthcare interventions. And one thing I've noticed is that um, if health news release writers were going to make one positive change, I would recommend that would be that they try to keep their audiences in mind. Kathleen Stone, we call her Cat, should know. She's worked both sides of the fence as a writer-reporter and in PR for a powerful medical association. If Guinness Book of World Records had a category for most medical press releases ever read or analyzed, Cat would win and probably be quite humble about it. Because when dealing with health interventions, the most uh, interesting readers are often going to be patients and caregivers. And they want to know, are there side effects? What's the cost of the drug or the, or the medical intervention? Uh, is it covered by insurance? How can I trust the claims that are being made? And that gets into the study and the evidence and who funded the research and who will benefit from a successful product. And um, so I think that news release writers should really take a step back and evaluate whether they are writing for their what we see as their primary audience, the patients and caregivers, or if they're writing for maybe the researcher or someone else in the institution that has other goals. While Kat is reviewing news releases, our deputy managing editor, Joy Victory, is usually reviewing news stories, applying the same 10 criteria we think every healthcare message should meet if it's going to provide consumers with accurate, balanced, and complete information. Check out this story. Well, this would be scary. A life-threatening heart rhythm can occur at any time, and it often comes without warning. The most effective treatment is defibrillation. In tonight's Avera Medical Minute, Tess Hedrick explains how a wearable defibrillator is helping to save lives. I truly don't think that I would be here if I didn't have the vest on. My heartbeat was going very, very, very fast. So there you heard a typical news story on a medical device. And it's a lot more boosterism promotional than it is critical reporting by journalists. But I found the reality of the life vest is far different. Um, there are patients that are getting harmed by this device. I interviewed a, the mom of a little girl who wore one and her skin was literally burned by it. And it shocked her several times when it shouldn't have gone off. And when I looked at the TV news reporting, I kept asking myself, where are the stories like hers that, that talk about the costs and the harms and the big money behind these medical devices. And I think that's when it dawned on me, the scope of our healthcare problems are a lot bigger than what people are reading about in the news or watching on TV. It's not just health insurance companies and it's not just big pharma, but it's also hospital systems and medical device companies and a lot of other players. And what did Joy find when she dug deeper into this story? Research studies on the LifeFest, which failed to prove it's any better than existing treatments. That seems like something patients would want to know about for a device that can not only burn them, but burn their bank account to the tune of about $3,000 a month. Isn't that newsworthy? Part of the problem is a medical device industry with a shockingly low bar to prove that their products work or are safe. And it's also hospital systems, both locally and nationally, that may be pushing these devices with more of an eye towards their bottom line than giving patients the balanced information that helps them make informed choices. The scope of these problems is so big, um, but the accountability is, is really pretty small compared to the scope of the problems. And the news coverage is far too often uncritical of what's really going on. You don't really need to find out what's going on. You don't really want to know just how far it's gone. 
Jill Adams has been a healthcare journalist for 15 years. She somehow manages to be a health columnist for the Washington Post and follow a couple of dozen health news sites each day looking for stories for our review team. So uh, as a working health journalist who also reads all these health news sites every day, you know, I, I expect people wonder if uh, reading that much helps my writing, and I would say yes, for sure. Um, and one way uh, that stands out is being really extra careful about what the main takeaway of a news story is, um, that I'm thinking about what readers are going to want to know. You know, what isn't known. I think what isn't known is just as important as what is known. Which raises a question she thinks about frequently. What does really solid healthcare journalism look like? Health journalism that shines. It's articles that go beyond reporting simply what's new and maybe uh, take that extra step to discuss what's needed, you know, um, what the caveats are. And it's often journalism that challenges the prevailing narrative. So sometimes that prevailing narrative is funded by people who can make money off of it. Um, sometimes the prevailing narrative is more of a collective belief, just things that people presume are true, and a journalist can go in and show that that thinking is biased or lazy or just pure wrong. I can say that healthcare is a really tough beat. Very few people graduate from journalism school saying, I want to go read medical studies all day, or I want to figure out how Medicare payments work. You have to be really dedicated to do it well. Mary Chris Jaklovic says it's not unusual that when she describes her work at healthnewsreview.org, people say, oh, so what you guys do is look for fake news, right? It's misleading to say the big problem in healthcare journalism is fake news. It's oversimplified news. It's clickbait news. It's sloppily reported news. It's a failure to acknowledge that scientific understanding is an evolutionary process. And that brings up something I get all the time when I tell people a good part of my job is scrutinizing poor quality health journalism. They say, man, that must get really depressing. Well, I asked Mary Chris if she gets that too. I don't mean to sound pessimistic. The situation isn't hopeless. As a news consumer, you can be skeptical about what you read and hear. You can check out multiple sources of information. And the most important thing you can do is to seek out good healthcare journalism. There is a lot of it out there, and we can all reward good journalism by sharing it with other people. And what's my theme? My take-home message? Well, as someone who's worked as both a clinician and a journalist, I've come to appreciate that good medicine and good journalism both take time. That may sound obvious, but not taking enough time seems to be what's hurting both disciplines as much as anything else. We have doctors cramming patients into 15-minute slots, and for journalists, deadlines are nothing new, and in some cases, completely justifiable. But often, news teams have this contrived sense of urgency. 
that seems unwarranted and counterproductive. This emphasis on misleading melodramas of miracles, promises, and cures with no hints of caution. But what's wrong with all of us taking a touch more time, being a touch more skeptical? Because otherwise, what we're left with is something that really concerns me, and that's this. We'll end up living in a time where believing has taken the place of understanding. And yes, understanding takes time. This podcast is a production of healthnewsreview.org. It's produced at our institutional home, the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota, along the banks of the mighty Mississippi River. I'm Michael Joyce. Thanks for listening.